our most gracious Heavenly Father. That last song we sang, All Who Are Thirsty. I'm so grateful that you have given us an open invitation to the water of life. Jesus told us, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And the chorus of that song, come, Lord Jesus, come. Father, whenever you're ready, we are. And I just thank you that you have a purpose for us while we wait. I pray, Father, that you would guide our time tonight, that you would speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So last time, we ended by looking at Solomon's government, which I know was really exciting, and his wealth after we saw God grant Solomon's request for the ability to rule over the people. Tonight, we're going to see the details of Solomon building the temple. Uh, So remember, David wanted to build a house for the Lord, but God told him, and this is going to come up again right here in chapter 5, that he couldn't do it because he had blood on his hands. He was a man of war. So instead, God promised him that he would build David a house, a prophecy concerning the Messiah through David's line, and that David's son would build the temple. Now, we studied all of this back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So if you want to go back and read that, it's great for a reminder. Not right now, but you know. David could not build the house, but he started, you know, a lot of churches, they have a building fund. David started a temple fund. And what David did is as he conquered the peoples around and took the spoils of war, he took all of that, the gold and the silver and the bronze and, the, and just everything that he gathered. And basically, I don't know where he put it, in a big pile somewhere, probably in the palace or something like that. Um, he was basically, he created a temple fund. And, and we're going to see that a little later on. So with that, We open up chapter 5. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon, because they heard that he had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram had always loved David. Then Solomon sent to Hiram, saying, You know how my father David could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God, because of the wars which were fought against him on every side, until the Lord put his foes under the soles of his feet? But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. And behold, I propose to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord spoke to my father David, saying, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, he shall build the house for my name. Now therefore command that they cut down cedars for me from Lebanon. And my servants will be with your servants. And I will pay you wages for your servants according to whatever you say. For you know there is none among us who has skill to cut timber like the Sidonians. So it was when Hiram heard the words of Solomon that he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, for he has given David a wise son over this great people. Then Hiram sent to Solomon, saying, I have considered the message which you sent me, and I will do all you desire concerning the cedar and cypress logs. My servants shall bring them down from Lebanon to the sea. I will float them on rafts by sea to the place you indicate to me, and will have them broken apart there. Then you can take them away, and you shall fulfill my desire by giving food for my household. Then Hiram gave Solomon cedar and cypress longs according to all his desire, and Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household, 
20 cores of pressed oil. Thus Solomon gave to Hiram year by year. So the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he had promised him, and there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty together. So, basically this is an agreement between the two kingdoms. Solomon's like, you know, I know your guys are good at logging, and well, we need some logs. What do you, th- what do you say? And Hiram blesses the Lord. I like how he blesses the Lord. Blessed be the Lord this day. For he has given David a wise son over his great people. And he goes, well, of course we'll do that. We'll float them down, right? Now, the only port they had at the time on the Mediterranean uh, was Joppa. Uh, remember, this is where Jonah boarded a ship to run from the will of God. Uh, and so that's where they would have floated them down to. And this amount of food. Uh, so a core is 10 bushels when you're talking about like a dry measurement of grain. So this is 200 bushels per year. That's a lot of wheat or whatever it was they were sending, whatever grain. Now, for a gallon or for a a wet measurement, um, the 20 cores of pressed oil would equal out to about 1,600 gallons of pure or virgin olive oil. That is a lot. So, while Hiram's a really nice guy, oh yeah, I'll do whatever you want. Solomon was paying a lot for this. Now in verse 13 through 18, we get the labor force. So King Solomon raised up a labor force out of all Israel, and the labor force was 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. They were one month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adonirim was in charge of the labor force. Solomon had 70,000 who carried burdens and 80,000 who quarried stone in the mountains. Besides 3,300 from the chiefs of Solomon's deputies who supervised the people who labored in the work. And the king commanded them to quarry large stones, costly stones, and hewn stones to lay the foundation of the temple. So Solomon's builders, Hiram's builders, and the Gebelites quarried them. And they prepared timber and stones to build the temple. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But this is, this is crazy, the, the number of people. I mean, if you have 80,000 people carrying burdens and 70,000 people, um, or did I get that backwards? 70,000 carried burdens, 80,000 were quarrying stones. That's 150,000, not including um, the 30,000 that were going up uh, 10,000 at a time. They would work a month and have two months off. Um, to help with the logging operation, right? So that takes us up to 180,000. Then Hiram actually sent builders down to Jerusalem to help with querying the stone. We're not even given that number. That is quite the labor force. And we get to chapter six. See, it's going to be a little short tonight, even though we're doing three chapters. Now, in verses 1 through 37 of chapter 6, we get the instructions given to Solomon. Uh, So like in verse 1 of chapter 6, it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziv, which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. 
Now, they were dating their calendar at this time based on the Exodus, right? So this was 480th year after the children of Israel. Now, if you go back and remember, uh, when we were in the book of Judges, we don't have an exact time frame for the period of Judges, but it's somewhere between three and 400 years. So now here we are. Remember, David reigned 40 years. So if this is the 480th year, it's the fourth year of King Solomon. You go back 44 years, David took the throne. And then you have roughly 36 years there between the end of Samuel as the last judge and Solomon, or Saul, sorry, as the first king. Just to kind of give you an idea of what this timeline looks like. Now, what's interesting, right, so the month of Ziv would be April slash May in our calendar. But what I do find interesting is, do you know we still keep our calendar based on an event? We do. We base our calendar upon the death and resurrection of Christ, give or take. Yeah, I mean, there's arguments about when zero actually was, or if we skipped zero and went right to one, uh, you know, so on and so forth. But nevertheless, the entire world is bound by a calendar that is based on the death and resurrection of Christ. That's pretty cool to me. It's pretty cool. Now, um, in the next bit, right? So the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, its length was 60 cubits, its width 20, right? So on and so forth. Can I have the next slide, baby? So that is the rough dimensions, right? So if we took cubits into feet, remember a cubit was roughly 18 inches, um, it was about 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high. The one exception is the pinnacle of the temple, which was an additional 25 feet high. You see it at the front of the picture there. For those of you online, if you can't see it, just Google Solomon's Temple, and you'll get all kinds of really cool things, uh, all kinds of great pictures. Uh, but that would make the pinnacle a total of 70 feet high. Uh, if you recall... When Jesus was facing the temptation from the devil in Matthew 4 and in Luke 4, the devil took him up to the top of the pinnacle of the temple and said, throw yourself down. His angel, he'll give his angels charge over you, lest you dash your foot against the stone. And Jesus replied, shall not test or tempt the Lord your God. Uh, in church history, besides the temptation of Jesus, that is what James was thrown from when he was martyred and he was thrown now granted that was Herod's temple so the pinnacle was probably higher at that point because when Herod rebuilt the temple for the Jews he made it grandiose and this temple really wasn't that big I, I mean the actual building itself 90 feet long 30 feet wide and 40 feet high it's a little bigger than our sanctuary now everybody didn't go in Right? The only people allowed in the temple were the priests, and the only people allowed in the Holy of Holies was the high priest once a year. So it wasn't like a church service. Everybody else gathered outside. But I'm getting ahead of myself. If you jump up to verse 7, it says, The temple, when it was being built, was built with stone, finished at the quarry, so that no hammer or chisel or any iron tool was heard in the temple while it was being built. And I really like that. So you have to imagine the ridiculous precision of the stone cutters because if they sent a stone that was cut wrong that stone was useless 
And these were not, you know, you, you can go out around our lawn out there and we have, you know, little five, six, seven inch stones. That's not the kind of stones they were cutting. These stones, some of them, it's estimated would have weighed upwards of two tons. That's a big stone. And it had to be cut so accurately that when it got to the temple, they could set it in place and move on. Because they didn't want the sound of tools of any kind being heard at the temple. Now, because the stone was quarried at a distance, um, there is a Jewish tale. And the tale goes like this, that in the process of building Solomon's temple, one day, the builders who were on site received a stone from the quarry, and they couldn't figure out where it went. So they took that stone, and they set it aside, and they kept going. Now, as they neared the end of the building of the temple, they sent message to the quarry, and they said, we need the cornerstone. So basically, the way they would finish a building is they'd have a cornerstone that would tie everything together. So this is an important piece. And the quarry sent back, and they said, well, we sent it to you a couple years ago. So they went looking for the stone they had set aside, right? Grass had grown over and all, and whoa, lo and behold, it was the cornerstone. Now, the reason that is believed to have happened, right? We don't know. It's not in the Bible, so that's, we don't know. But in Psalm 118, verse 22, we read, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. We know that is a prophecy of Jesus Christ. Jesus applied this property to, prophecy sorry, to himself in Matthew 21, 42, and Peter applied it to Jesus in 1 Peter 2, 6 and 7. So whether or not that actually happened, it makes a really nice illustration because it applies to what happened to Jesus. He was there, the Jewish Messiah, to save the nation, to die for the sins of the world, and, and the majority of the Jewish nation rejected him. And it turned out, well, he was the very one that they were waiting for. Now, when you jump up to verse 11, it says, The word of the Lord came to Solomon, saying, Concerning this temple which you are building, if you walk in my statutes, execute my judgments, keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will perform my word with you, which I spoke to your father David. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So Solomon built the temple and finished it. So the renewal of the covenant between God and the house of David and Israel as a whole. And this is very much a conditional covenant. The conditional covenant is this. If you do what I've told you, then I'm going to do everything that I've promised. And if we go back to Deuteronomy right before they entered the land, and then we see it executed in the book of Joshua, they had two choirs. One on, um, one was Mount Gerizim, and what was the other mountain? Ebal? I think it was Ebal. That sounds right? All right, we're, we're, if we're going with it because Grayson said it was right. Um, that they had one choir singing the blessings that would come upon Israel for keeping the law of God, and one choir singing the curses that would come upon Israel for not keeping the law. Now, we, under the new covenant, well, it's a little different, isn't it? Because God 
had to be just in punishing sin, but he didn't want to punish us. So the condition of sin being punished was met by Jesus on the cross. Now, we have to receive the free gift of God's grace, and we do have the choice to reject the gospel. So there is a condition, but it's not a work. Under the old covenant, it was a work. It's not a work anymore because the work has been accomplished. But the condition is we do have to receive the free gift when offered. And if we reject it, well, that's not going to work out very well, is it? I always wonder, and I've asked this question a couple times over the last few weeks, because I don't understand why anybody would reject the free gift of salvation. And so I was kind of thinking about that while I was working on this study. You know, for some, it's the love of sin and darkness. Remember Jesus um, in his discussion with, is it when he was talking to Nicodemus? I know it's up in John. That uh, light has come into the world, but men love the darkness because their deeds are evil and they don't want to come to the light lest their deeds should be exposed. I do think some people just are so trapped in their sin that even when they hear the gospel, they, they don't want to come to the light. I think for some people it's hard-heartedness. Right? Maybe they've been hurt by a church or maybe they've suffered various kinds of trauma. And you know, I'm not I'm not trying to discount that because those things are difficult. But Satan's going to use that. For others, and the Bible tells us this, I should have put the reference down, I don't remember where it's at that the God of this world or the God of this age has blinded them. And that's just straight up blindness by the devil. But in the end, each person makes their choice. And as God said to the Israelites, back in the book of Deuteronomy, choose life. Now, the rest of the chapter basically talks about everything being covered in gold. It is estimated, based on the dimensions of everything that was covered in gold, it is estimated that the gold used in the temple was somewhere around 75,000 pounds. That is a lot of gold. I had to look it up. I looked up the price of gold by ounce. Then I divided 75,000 pounds by 16 so I could get the number of ounces. Then I multiplied that by the current price of gold. Just the gold in the temple in today's dollars would be worth $2,342,400,000, give or take. You talk about needing a building fund. In, at the end of... Chapter 6. Um, yeah, so I, you feel free to read it. I highly encourage you to. You can read in verse you know, 29, Then he carved all the walls of the temple all around, both the inner and outer sanctuaries, with carved figures of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. I, I don't necessarily think we need to read all that. Um, but it says in verse 14 that he finished the temple. Up in verse 37, it said it took him 
seven years to do it. So can I have the next slide, baby? That is an artist's approximation of the temple. Now, like we talked about, the common person could not go into the temple, only the priests. So what you see inside the walls, um, you have an outer courtyard, and then you go through to where the temple actually was. Only the priests could go in there. And then the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. Um, the outer court would have been a court for the men. And then beyond that, the other courts surrounding the temple, there was a court of women. And then there was supposed to be a court for the Gentiles. When Jesus went into the temple and he drove out the money changers, right? He made a whip of cords, flipped over the table, drove them out and said, my house is to be a house of prayer and you have made it a den of thieves. They were set up. It's believed that they were set up in the court of the Gentiles. And the problem was, just like the church is meant to be the light of the gospel to the world around us, Israel was meant to be that light to the world around them. They were to be sharing with other people the one true God whom they worshipped. And by the time they got to Jesus' day, they were denying Gentiles the opportunity to come and worship. Right? They weren't allowed in the temple. But there was supposed to be a court set aside just for them. Just like there was one for the women. Um, in Hebrews 8.5, we are reminded that the tabernacle and now the temple... And the worship system given in the law were only a copy and shadow of heavenly things. And I've always found that interesting because when you begin to look um, or, or you, you seek out places in the Bible that describe the throne room of God, there's a lot going on in that throne room that was then depicted in the tabernacle and then the temple. Like the cherubim with outstretched arms over the ark. We read that one verse, right? The inner and outer sanctuaries with carved figures of cherubim. Because when we get to the book of Revelation, there are thousands, or ten thousands upon ten thousands of angels flying around the throne of God, singing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And now one day we'll get to join in on that chorus. But the temple, the tabernacle first and then the temple was always meant to be a picture of the throne room of God kind of to give us a, an inkling about what was coming. And we're going to talk more about that when we get towards close tonight. It's chapter 7, verse 1. Solomon took 13 years to build his own house. I don't know why that tickles me so. Um, but he took 13 years to build his own house. And the rest of, or going up through verse 12... You see, uh, it was, you know, other houses that he built, other buildings that he built. You see the, the doorways that he put in. Um, in verse 7, he made a hall for the throne, the hall of judgment where he might judge. And it was paddled with cedar from floor to ceiling, uh, you know, and, and so on and so forth. I do think it's, it's quite interesting that he probably started building his house, even if he started building it a few years before he started building the temple. Um, he still took 13 years to build his house and seven to build the temple. Now, he had 300 wives and 700 concubines. He needed a lot of room. But, I don't know, I think it's quite often that we tend to, sp 
well, you know, spend more time on our own stuff than we do on God's. Verse 13. Now, King Solomon sent and brought Huram. Your Bible might say Hiram. This is not a king, but a Jewish man from Tyre. He was the son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali. That's how we know he was Jewish and not the king uh, of Tyre. Uh, he wa- uh, uh, and his father was a man of Tyre, a bronze worker. He was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill and working with all kinds of bronze work. So he came to King Solomon and did all his work. Now, I love this for a very specific reason. Uh, many times in the recent past, uh, I have referred to Ephesians 2.10, which says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And far too often, Christians think, well, I'm not a pastor. I'm not an evangelist. I'm not a Bible teacher. I'm not a worship leader. So, you know, I'm not really gifted by God for ministry. What was this guy gifted in? Working with bronze. He was a craftsman. And the Bible says that he was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill in working with all kinds of bronze work. This was God's gift that he gave to Huram, working with bronze. Now, I meet people all the time, and I know what my gifts are, and I'm blessed that I get to use them. I couldn't fix a car to save my soul, which is a good thing since I don't have to. Right? I can change a tire. I could probably change the oil. But if something went wrong with my car, I'm done. I'm lost. When I buy a new laptop, I always get Apple Care because I always buy Macs. And Apple Care is an extended warranty that includes phone calls to tech services in case something's going on with my Mac and I have no clue. I can open a Word document, I can create a PowerPoint, but that's fairly limited after that. And if something goes wrong, I'm up a creek. I had to use it once. I downloaded an update that actually caused my hard drive to go wonky. So I had to let the person on my computer remotely so that they could take the the update off, then re-download the update that didn't have the bug in it so my computer would work again. It was crazy. I just sat there and watched. That's not my gift. My wife, she's gifted to work with kids. Not my gift. I love kids. But especially the age group she works with, not my gift. Not my gift. And I think we're all created and gifted by God according to his will and purpose. And by his grace, we need to walk that out. It doesn't matter what that gift is. If you're gifted to work with your hands, then praise God, work with your hands. If you're gifted to do something else, whatever it is, accept it. Know that God put that in you and then seek him for how you can use it. Now, verse 15 through 51. (laughs) Right? He made two capitals of cast bronze up there in verse 16. In verse 23, he made a sea of cast bronze, which was ginormous. Uh, It stood on 12 oxen. He made 10 carts of bronze uh, up in verse 27. Um, the workmanship in verse 33 of the wheels was like the workmanship of a chariot wheel. Their axle pins 
Their rims, their spokes, and their hubs were all cast of bronze. Verse 40. He made lavers, shovels, and bowls. Two bowl-shaped capitals. So on and so forth. He made a lot of stuff out of bronze. So there's a couple things we're going to point out. Baby, can I have the next slide? So that gives you an idea of some of the stuff that he made with bronze. The laver, the, the, the uh, capital with the pomegranate surrounding it under the pinnacle of the temple, uh, the, the altar, so on and so forth. Crazy amount. Now, in verse 21, they name the two pillars. He set up the pillar on the right and he called its name Jachin or Jachin. And he set up the pillar on the left and he called its name Boaz. Now we know a Boaz in the book of Ruth, not the same, because Boaz wasn't that kind of pillar. The, the name Jachin means established by God. The name Boaz means strength. So the two pillars meant that the people of Israel were established by God in strength. That's kind of cool. So for anybody who doesn't have kids, when you get there, you have a boy, name him Jake and, Bo- Jake and Boaz. Call him JB for short. Established by God in strength. Now, when you jump up to verse 47, it said Solomon did not weigh all the articles because there were so many, the weight of the bronze was not determined. Right? That's a lot of bronze. It's probably a whole lot more bronze than gold, but we don't have a number, so we can't guess the price. Now, gold, bronze is worth much less than gold, but still, we're already almost $2.5 billion in just with the gold. When you start figuring in how much he paid Hiram for the logs, how much he had to pay a workforce of over 200,000 people, it's not unrealistic to think that the cost of the temple was probably upwards of $5 billion in today's money. When you get to verse 51, it says, All the work King Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and gold and the furnishings. He put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. So I want you to think about this. Remember, David created a temple fund. We talked about that at the beginning. The cost of the temple, probably between four and five billion dollars. There was money left over. Right? There was still money left. Silver, gold, um, furnishings. There was still money left. That's insane. We're not told how much was left. But that basically means when, when Solomon took over as king, his dad left him a temple fund that was worth in our day and age, probably somewhere between 5 and $10 billion. Wow. So, brass. Throughout all of Scripture, brass is often seen as a picture of judgment. This is why so many of the vessels, furniture, tools, and such were made of brass. They were used as part of the sacrificial system where sacrifices were made for the sin and other things. When Jesus is described in Revelation chapter 1, he has feet of fine brass, speaking of judgment. Now, gold. That same passage, 
in Revelation chapter 1. Jesus is girded about his chest with gold. That's why the uh, gold is always a picture of either divinity or monarchy, of a king. So that's why everything outside the temple was brass. Because all of that was part of the sacrificial system. It all spoke of judgment. But when you came inside the temple, the only place where you could actually meet with the presence of God in the, in the Holy of Holies, and again, that was only once a year, everything in there was gold in representation of God's divinity and kingship. Kind of cool, huh? Lydia, can you go back to the previous slide? The completed temple. So, we're going to take a short journey through the temple. And you can just kind of follow it on the picture up there. And if you want these scriptures, I will gladly give them to you. You can come and get them off my notes because I'm going to go through this fairly quickly. But we're going to take a journey through the temple that shows us how Jesus is a fulfillment of the temple. When we were in the book of Leviticus... We went through each of the sacrifices and talked about how Jesus fulfilled all of them. And we did this when we talked about the tabernacle back in the book of Exodus. Um, I think we did it again in the book of Numbers. But we're going to do it again now. The gate. right? There was a gate to get into the temple from the outer courts. Jesus called himself the door in John 10.9. The gate was the only way to get into the temple, into the presence of God. Jesus is the only way for us to get into the presence of God. The bronze laver, which is also called a wash basin, Jesus washed us in his blood, according to Revelation 1.5. Then you have the altar, where the sacrifices were made. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice for our sins, according to Hebrews 9.26. When you get inside the temple, you get to the lampstands. Uh, in the tabernacle, if you go back and read all the stuff we skipped, in the tabernacle there was one lampstand. Uh, I believe Solomon made four because the, the temple was bigger than the tabernacle. Uh, nevertheless, the lampstands, uh, Jesus told us that he was the light of the world. Well, he still is the light of the world. In John chapter 8, verse 12. The incense Incense, according to Revelation 5.8, is often a representation of prayer. Uh, it's also in Luke 1, when Zacharias went in to offer incense, uh, it was in an hour of prayer. Jesus is our intercessor and advocate. Romans 8.34, 1 John 2.1, and Hebrews 7.25. Then you get the table of showbread inside. Jesus is the bread of life. John 6.35 And then when you go into the Holy of Holies there is the Ark of the Covenant also called the Mercy Seat and Jesus is the only way into the presence of God John 14.6 and we according to Hebrews chapter 4 can have boldness to come before the Mercy Seat of God and ask for grace and help in our time of need. Now, I am aware that what we covered tonight is not always the most exciting stuff when we get into Scripture. However, Isaiah 55, 10, and 11 says this, 
For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. The attitude I think we need to have towards passages like this, like reading through the law, and I think the attitude we need is that this isn't in bore, it's not boring, and nor is it unimportant, because God chose to include it in his word. And when we take the time to study and understand it, God will allow his word to bring forth fruit in our lives. That's the promise in Isaiah 55. So there you go. That's why we should study this stuff. Especially if we take the time to explore how it relates to Jesus. Because you remember, Jesus told the Pharisees, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have life. And at the time, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. So this is only referring to the 39 books that comprise the Old Testament. He says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have life. And he said, these are they which testify of me. From the very first verse, all of scripture points us to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you've given us your word to point us to Jesus. I pray, Father, that we would always follow that arrow. That we would do so by your grace and your mercy. That we would do so by the strength you impart to each of us by your Holy Spirit. And that we would do so in a way that brings you honor and glory. Be with us for the rest of our week and whatever lies ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.